0: This is like Mousetrap in Reverse. The real life has caught up with Bod. It's not one of those Mr. Frosty situations. Ronnie Bear
1: what we're you up
0: to. I can't be loyal, they're just puppets.
2: A slightly more apologetic <laughs> version of this video. Hello, I'm Tim Worthington, and welcome to another collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar, a show in which myself and the guests talk about some of the things that they remember that nobody else ever seems to. Right in front of me right now, I've got a copy of the Radio Times giveaway version of the audiobook read by David Tennant of Doctor Who, The Stone Rose, written by previous looks and familiar guest Jacqueline Rayner. Looking at it now... I mean, first of all, the title is a pun on the Stone Roses, who, for one particular reason, we don't really mention anymore. The story very prominently features Mickey Smith, who, for another reason, we don't really mention that much anymore. Also, includes a mention of Captain Jack Harkness, who, for another reason, we don't really mention that much anymore. So, sorry Jack, I've picked a really, really bad thing at random to talk about in the introduction to this. Anyway, although mentioning celebrities from the 70s that you don't really hear, Hear very much about now should be setting off all kinds of alarm bells when writer gabby bainbridge appeared on looks Familiar, he wanted to talk about a character who well the reason we don't hear about her if you can say her anymore is that simply that nobody remembers her slash it slash I don't know how you define it because really she never had much luck. The 1970s were like they were just rife with ventriloquists I mean
0: absolutely riddled with them and Penny Page was one of them and she'd come up through the cabaret circuit in the northwest which is almost impossible to imagine these days you know, that sort of a chicken in a basket joint that seems sort of to have died a death and she had this duck puppet and this duck's gimmick was that she came from Liverpool like you know it's not enough to have a talking duck even though talking is one step up from Rod Hall and Emu. A kind kind of assumed she was a Liverpool duck because Penny Page wasn't any good at accents. And then, you know, like a lot of these acts, she ended up on a TV talent show. I can't remember which one, actually. It was
2: Rising Stars, apparently, on the BBC in 1979, which I'd never heard of until I started. Because I'd never gone and looked at the history of Googie Liverpool Duck for a number of reasons. And, but apparently it's that.
0: <laughs> oh, right, OK. I knew it was an opportunity in or New Faces, because it was on the BBC. But yeah, she was going to be the next big thing. And then she'd recorded this song as Googie the Liverpool Duck. Which is, as you'll have heard, Googie the Liverpool Duck, explaining how she's a duck called Googie, who comes from Liverpool, which, to be fair, is similar territory to so a lot of gangster rap. But I do wonder what happens when ventriloquists do novelty records. Like, did Keith Harris take Orville into the studio and cans over his ears? Is that how it works? I don't know. <laughs> some sort of TV strike and whatever momentum she'd built up just dissolved and then this single was you know a massive flop apart from in Liverpool because you know this was a time when Liverpool was being absolutely battered in the media around the country and honestly you know there was this sort of real sort of Mersey Pride thing that was going on where you could put out like a a record of white noise with the word Liverpool on it and Billy Butler and Norman Thomas would play it on the local radio or you know they'd play it at primary school discos Yes
2: and everywhere you walk round there would be some girl on the other side of the street you know just at the other edge of it singing and my name is G-G-G. Really loudly. It was everywhere. It was inescapable for a while. Absolutely,
0: yes. Astonishing. I mean, I don't know what happened to Penny Page after that. I think maybe she popped up on a few children's TV programmes.
2: I know one thing she turned up on, which is in 1986, Granada did a really weird one-off. I assume it was a pilot for, you know, an ongoing variety show called I Feel Fine. Obvious Liverpool link, where they just shoved everyone who was performing in Liverpool at that point from Stan Boardman to the real thing. <laughs> in front of just a microphone on stage yeah with rapid succession just like you're on off on off and she was on that with Googie I remember thinking oh were they still going and that to be fair that's like five years later but at that age it felt like an eternity apparently she also had Skipples the dog which I have no recollection of and also like a lot of the 70s venture ventures did like Roger DeCourcy, two acts one for kids and a quote blue one for adults, because even the Googie song kind of hints at that were, there's a bit about, I mean first of all, Googie claims to live up just by Scotty Road, which for anyone who's not from Liverpool, Scotland Road had a reputation at one point for being the harder street, except by the time this record came out, that reputation was about 10 years gone, because there'd been, you know, redevelopment work, people have been moved on to different places, and also, by Scotty Road, well you're not living on here, are you? But also, Googie claims that my man's a docker and he's up to every trick and is always on the sick. And that's kind of pitched above kids' heads, I think.
0: You would think so, wouldn't you? And also, that is incredibly offensive if you are a docker. I did read that she retired, which is kind of understandable. I do hope, though, you know, to delight her fans, she even these days occasionally whips out a googie. Well, I've got to say that even
2: as much as... It's sort of a troubling memory to me, just this... Basically, if you're not seeing googie, it looks like an exploded one of those... You know those rainbow Afro wigs that people like Jonathan King would wear in the 70s to be hilarious? <laughs> just kind of looks like that but from what I've seen looking back now she was a good ventriloquist it was an original act and she was very very popular locally and I can't really although that song irritates me I can't really sort of say anything too negative really because it just isn't not that it isn't fair, fairly really, just that it doesn't apply at all no. you know she's one of the last examples of that kind of act really this is something that struck me in the 70s in particular ventriloquists were so big and I remember once seeing a page in the catalogue. You know when the catalogue used to come in like <laughs> September or October and you go through looking at all the toys with the magnifying glass. There was a page of ventriloquist puppet right. replica, so it had like Orville. It had that weird, do you remember when Emu was first marketed? It was like an orange one with fuzzy yes. hair. But also Collier's cockerel. Apparently Norman Collier had a cockerel puppet at one point. Really? I've since searched for information on that. I can't find it anywhere. And there were all of that. I don't know whether Googie was on there or not, but it was a huge thing.
0: It was a huge thing. We had to make our own entertainment in the 1970s. I think the thing with Penny Page is she had her shot. You know, the likes of Roger DeCoursey, you know, these acts that came up through, you know, the talent shows like Opportunity Knocks and New Faces. They had their chance and they did it and they got through. And if she'd gone onto one of the earlier shows or maybe even, you know, New Faces when Marty Kane brought that back, she might have been okay. I think she just had that one moment where, you know, she could have broken through and she didn't. And that was it then. You know, you've had your chance and that it. Off you go.
2: Well, I'm going to lay the blame squarely at the, I suppose, the port of one of my major obsessions, which is you mentioned that in a way she fell victim to the ITV strike in 1979, which, you know, did cause a lot of problems for people, because basically there was no TV of the sort that would have had. I know she came to a BBC show, but the likes of Penny Page on regularly for months and months and months. Now, I'm fairly certain that she would have been booked to appear on a Saturday morning programme made in Liverpool Pool, which people claim was kiboshed by the strike but it would have ended soon anyway the mercy Pirate. oh surely God. surely she would have had a regular turn on that oh. Um that must have evaporated like Uh-oh. like the rain did immediately after the mercy pirate finished <laughs> Oh, God. But she was the sort of person who would also always show up at things like the Liverpool International Garden Festival in 1984, forever doing things locally. And I don't know, do you get those local micro-celebrities anymore?
0: Not since Rex Macon died.
2: <laughs> oh, we don't have to explain who Rex Macon was, do we? <laughs>
0: I don't know. I think everybody's a micro-celebrity these days. They're all famous within a certain group. There aren't that many people who cross over to worldwide or national fame.
2: Unfortunately, we don't all have puppets. (laughs) God, can you imagine if everyone on Twitter had a ventriloquist dummy that they made themselves? It doesn't bear thinking about... Sadly for poor old Googie, there's one thing that you just didn't get with what can best be described as world-famous local celebrities, and that's a sense of exotic international glamour. Unless, of course, you were from somewhere international, exotic and glamorous, but anyway, when I appeared as the guest on the Christmas-themed edition Looks Unfamiliar, with Gareth and standing in as host, I wanted to talk about a certain elusive box of chocolates that seemed, at least to me at the time, like the last word in exotic international glamour. I'm actually at the ambassador's reception I'm putting myself in the presumably very expensive shoes of the woman in the advert for Ferrero Prestige which has been a kind of confectionery holy grail of mine for a very long time
3: Well as a great advocate of forgotten or obscure snacks I'm going to have to ask you for some details on these non Rocher Ferrero products I'm assuming they're canon What are we looking at here?
2: They are absolutely canon because Roche is included Basically Ferrero Prestige is a huge tray, it's split into four, you get a couple of lines of rocher a couple of lines of pocket coffee which is chocolate with a shot of espresso in a couple of lines of muncheree which is chocolate with a whole cherry in and a couple of lines of cushion which is basically a kind of praline confection of some description very expensive very big and never mind the ambassador's reception if he had a pyramid of rocher at his party at this one was prestige i don't know what it'd be it'd be i don't know belinda carlisle doing coke or some gold bullion <laughs> <laughs> At a private screening of that lost BBC play with Bob Dylan in, and probably the actual literal Piers Morgan used as a novelty punch bag in the corner. I'm there! If anyone knows who the ambassador that runs that party is, please, please, please put me in touch with them. It just seems so impossibly glamorous to me. Around the time, because the weird thing about the ambassador's reception advert is, it was that that turned Ferreira Roche into a punchline. Before that, they themselves had seemed almost impossibly glamorous. You think about it. At that point, you've got roses, you've got black magic, you know, pretty much standard. No matter how opulent they were, things like all gold as well. Chocolates, they were just chocolates in the tray. Suddenly you've got these weird, half-gooey, half-hard, spherical chocolates with dashed hazelnuts all around. In a gold wrapper, in a little paper tray, inside a clear plastic case with the thickness of the windows and the picture box, the opening title's a picture box. And that sort of thing (laughs) were... If you've given somebody a spare ticket for something, they would give Ferrero Rocher to the person who the ticket originally belonged to to say thank you because it was that big. But prestige, oh my word. The main thing I remember them being doled out in relation to was things in school and in church when somebody had done something to help with, I don't know, the Christmas assembly or something that had been considered above and beyond the call of duty. They would be presented by the head teacher with a tray Ferrero Prestige, all the kids in the school would be looking in wonder and it In fact, that weird thing where, you know, a teacher would say, "Uh, I don't remember saying anyone could look. you know, Because they were short of anything to tell anyone off for. But they saw this kind of mass curiosity as dissent. I don't think I ever actually got hold of one. And I was just fascinated by what are all these other chocolates? Why do you never see them anywhere else? And as an avow fan of the Ferro Rocher, I wanted more. I particularly wanted pocket coffee, which will not surprise anyone who knows me. But also, I was very, I still am very seduced by anything that seems glamorous from Europe. I mean, even at that age already, I was obsessed with Magic Roundabout. I was interested in people like Francois Hardy, European cinema. Coffee, well, there's a surprise. And I always wondered why people went on and on about the full English breakfast. It seemed like the dullest thing in the world to me. I was thinking, what, there's a breakfast where you can have, like, two croissants and black coffee. And it's called the Continental Breakfast. That's the one for me. (laughs) And so Ferrero Rocher seemed like the biggest extravagance and opulence you could have in that area. And because it wasn't widely available, you didn't see footballers waving them round on the TV saying, <laughs> oh, well, the lads thought I'd done good, so they got me one of these. It didn't have any tarnish to it. It felt exciting. It felt jet-setting, but not in the kind of horrendously capitalist way. And I so wanted one. But how did you get hold of them?
3: Well, I mean, I honestly had not heard of these until you mentioned them. We are- obviously moved in very different circles. It seems very sort of, not only is it continental glam, but it's specifically kind of 70s, 80s continental glam. And what dates it for me is coffee chocolate and cherry chocolate. Now, I always remember the coffee ones in Roses disappearing sometime around the dawn of the 90s.
2: Coffee matchmakers as well. I want them back.
3: Yeah, no, I I completely forgot about coffee matchmakers as well. But yeah, it seems like that all just got swept away at some arbitrary point. So there's a little piece of nostalgia in there alongside the glam for me.
2: Well, it's funny you mention the glam because the adverts for all of these, people think the ambassador's reception is a bizarre enough advert. Bear in mind, these were adverts originally made in Europe. We never really got any of them over here, but if you look at the ones from the 80s and the 90s, the pocket coffee ones are kind of like kooky romantic comedy, sort of people meet taking an exam, sort of thing. Moncherie is sort of like well to do, upwardly mobile couples in a comic scenario where they've forgotten they're having a dinner party or whatever. Cushion, my word, there's one advert in particular where basically. A woman kind of goes like, "Way, oh, hey, I've scored two blokes. I'm off to have sex with them. Yeah. Like winks to the camera at the end. <laughs> so, no, I didn't know at that point, but the faint tint of all of that as well involved in it. And it makes them all the more tantalising. And they just kept proving impossible to get. And now you didn't meant to buy them online. But because of a certain way, a certain vote went a couple of years ago, you can't. The postage is about eight times the price of the trays themselves, which are not cheap. And I imagine if you complained about it, you'd have people shouting, why can't you have Cadbury's ration? It was good enough for your nana. Think of her. And you know, well, mine like Black Magic because they're like expensive looking, <laughs> but that's by the by. I even tried in the imported sweet, sweet shop that we both got moon pie from. <laughs> <laughs> what a time to be alive. And they weren't able to import them. And it's... It's so frustrating. It is. I mean, I can get all of the chocolates individually through Amazon, but it's not quite the same as having a big tray, a tailor-made, custom-made tray of them with
3: fancy sparkly gilt lettering on it. Yeah, it's got to be the full product, hasn't it? That's the only thing they'll do. And I did do a little research. All right, I was shopping for chocolate. Are you happy now? I found that Ferrero prestige boxes are still available on the continent, like you say, but the markup on them for and packing is absolutely ridiculous, assuming you can find somebody to deliver to you in the first place, because anybody overseas
2: doesn't like Royal Mail. Confusingly, not all of the boxes feature cushion. Yes, I noticed that. Why are they such a random factor in it? Why are they sometimes included and sometimes not? Is it a territories thing? Is, is it something to do with the... Woman- in the upper, like maybe she's got some non-disclosure agreement those two blokes i don't know
3: i did find one thing that might point towards a possible reason apparently in 2013 they released a white chocolate cushion and in Germany, they had to withdraw the adverts because the slogan they used was Germany votes white. OK. So perhaps what we're seeing is some German boxes that have quietly had those removed.
2: I mean, I'm sure that was an accident. But even so, for a company that are that aware of their own branding, they will have a big pyramid of Roche in the advert and make a big thing of it and then really adopt it when people start making fun of that you would think they might have noticed. Some kids weren't after Exotic International Glamour by way of expensive chocolates for Christmas, though. Some of them just wanted noisy plastic toys. When horror historian Becky Dark joined us, she wanted to talk about a certain bath time pal who had an unfortunate habit of keeping most of the bath with him.
4: Oh, Tubby Turtle, Tim. He was my favourite bath toy. This is something that I had for so long and... Touched and played with so much that I can still feel the feeling of the plastic under my fingers you know when you just had those toys that were just so like I was inseparable from this thing basically he's a turtle and he was probably I don't know about the size of a side plate for argument's sake and he was green on one side and yellow on the other and it was kind of hard plastic and then he had little flippers which were sort of rubbery and then a head that sort of popped out at the top and basically when When you sort of scooped him through the water and scooped water up in him and as the water came out of little holes in his shell and out of like the holes where his little flippers and his tail went in, his flippers would flap and his head would sort of like bob up and down and like come in and out of his shell. He'd sort of go like. Flap 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 flap. Like he'd make a little noise, like as his little flippers would go. And he was made by play school, and he was something ridiculous, like age naught to thirty six months or something. And I was just completely obsessed, and I love Tubby Turtle so much, and I don't know where he's gone. He probably got mouldy and thrown out eventually through some sort of tear laced tantrum as mum sort of wrestled him out of my hands to finally put him in the bin because he'd gone completely gross. But I was just I was just obsessed. What the
2: little evidence of it out there. I mean, the first thing is, I remember the topic it was a bit too old, but I remember it existing because it was always in the catalogue. <laughs> yeah. In speech marks when you'd be looking through the toys. Tommy Turtle was always in there. It looked to me like you could demolish a factory. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, he was a sturdy boy.
2: And if you want one, there's plenty for sale online where the description always seems to say has some water inside. Ew, no,
4: I don't want you, it. Get it out! <laughs> I mean, because, like, you couldn't, he definitely didn't sort of come apart. What would make sense is if mum or dad or a and other carer could take Tubby Turtle apart gently, give him a little clean inside, but there was no doing that. So whatever was accumulating inside stayed there. Because, obviously, this was exactly the same time where I had like matey for example so it must all just be like matey suds and whatever you're washing off of, like, three-year-olds. So, like, mud and jam, I guess. But
2: then again, matey, you know, if we thought Tuppy Turtle could demolish a factory, matey looked like it could strip paint. <laughs> so surely that would extinguish anything else that was trapped inside it.
4: Well, yeah, true. You would think that, but no, not in the end. Although he did last a very long time, so matey maybe just, like, sort of put off the inevitable for a couple of years. It was actually
2: pitched, though. You know, obviously you adored it and it was men- for young children but I remember being advertised more at parents like kind of this will make bath times a bit easier (laughs) something (laughs) to distract them I'm not sure that it would necessarily work because surely the thing is a child will either like a bath or not and saying look here's a huge massive plastic turtle would not change their overall reaction to be dunked in water
4: yeah I mean I did always quite enjoy bath time I wasn't one of these like water shy kids I was getting the bath quite happily as I remember it so yeah, you're probably right. I don't think he was like the main law. But there
2: is so little out there. As you've mentioned, it was manufactured by Play School with a K, you know, because it was that bit cooler. But I cannot pinpoint exactly when it was manufactured. Including there are different copyright dates given Oh out. wow! As in there's an actual copyright date stamped on it, which seems to update periodically. The only one that's a photo of is 1989, but I'm convinced it was around before
4: that. Yeah, I mean it would have been, and I definitely had. When I was young, young No, exactly And there was no way My parents were buying A tubby turtle For a seven-year-old I mean, come on But it
2: is actually Quite disturbing To look at him now Because he's sort of Spread eagle (laughs) Like flat on his back With a
4: worried expression Yeah, this was one thing So he's got Sort of these two He's got these two big eyes Sort of big Like white eyes With nice dark Black pupils And then his mouth Sort of wiggles Up and down So you can't quite tell If he's smiling Or grimacing
2: It's like when Tom looks perturbed In Tom and
4: <laughs> yeah it is so yeah i mean in my head we were always having nice bath time together but it's possible that he thought i was just trying to drown him
2: come to think of it toby turtle was so sturdy that he could actually have withstood uh, do you know what i'm not actually going to make any jokes in this link because when this chat with comedian toby Haydo first went out i did actually put a warning at the start because i was aware that possibly some people listening and i know that quite a lot of you like to listen to looks of without knowing what's coming up might not have just wanted to stumble straight across without warning a chat about 80s nuclear paranoia and in particular this season of theme programmes on the BBC in 1985 so if that's you, I'm going to say skip forward the next 7 or 8 minutes or so, actually no I'm not going to say skip forward, I'm going to say go and listen to the edition of It's Good Except It Sucks with James Couray-Smith talking about Morbius if you are going to skip ahead, we'll see you again shortly if you're not, this gets really really interesting and in places is really funny.
5: This is, I recall, you gave me the title after the bomb after I'd said, I have this horrific memory <laughs> from childhood. What were they doing? Did the BBC decide to do a nuclear holocaust season or some such? I don't know whether it was because it was something to look forward to or whether, you know, they were celebrating the invention of whether it was Oppenheimer's uh, it birthday. it was
2: the 40th anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And rather than oh, showing oh, Hiroshima right. more and more, which... <laughs> all of the points in this in the context of a very dark romantic drama they did this week of programming on the theme of the
5: nuclear right, threat right so it was a week yes because I'd got it in my head as a sort of season the, the nuclear holocaust it was every season. night for
2: a week so yeah a, a lot right. of people going to bed not very happy I think
5: but. not only that I mean this was proper scared I used to be allowed to stay up to watch universal horror movies and they got you know I got a little bit of a chill around the neck and I'd pull the duvet around the neck and I lived in the countryside and branch would scrape on windows and i think oh if i put my duvet around the neck at least when the vampire comes to get me he'll wake me up by trying to move the duvet and i'll be able to escape but you know there was part of me that still knew that that probably wasn't true you know i watched doctor who but i didn't hide behind the sofa i was thrilled by it i wasn't scared the nuclear holocaust season on the bbc absolutely terrified me and i was drawn to the war game not because it was nuclear holocaust season but because in the paper I remember we used to get the Shropshire Star and I used to have to go and pick it up because as I say we lived in the country so the way the paper was delivered was that a man would drive past on the main road we were off the main road about a quarter of a mile down and would throw it out onto the corner and you'd have to go and get it at around that time because otherwise it would get rained on so I remember getting the Shropshire Star and I'd you know pour over what was going to be on the television that night and it said you know the war game this was banned in 1969 so it was the allure of going well nobody's been allowed to see this it's a bit like a missing episode with doc two if something's just out of reach you know it has some sort of magic of sparkle of, and you know you always want what you are denied you know you always aspire to get that which is out of reach i wasn't really thinking about the nuclear element although that was big in drama and you know storytelling and there were things like when the wind blows and there was said for zachariah so that there was certainly a Nana's 99 red balloons there was certainly a sort of subgenre of imminent holocaust inspired i'm by captain <laughs>
2: sensible which he predicted the end of the
5: cold war <laughs> oh God! and also and i brought this up on stage the other day and there was a guy in the audience who, who was able to tell me and i'm not quite sure why i lived on a place called clee hill which is in the middle of nowhere between ludlow and bridge north in shropshire and on one of the other hills because clee is old english for hill so i lived on a hill called hill hill <laughs> there was the brown clee presumably because it was brown. I don't know what colour of the other hills were. And then there's the Titterston Clee. I don't know what that meant, but that was the one that had a big mushroom on it. It had a big white mushroom on it, which was, we called it the Radar Dome. And so I remember when nuclear holocausts were talked of, I was like, but we're set, because in all these books, you know, you escaped if you, because they bombed the major cities. So the one advantage we had of, you know, not having another house for a quarter of a mile, being slap bang in the middle of nowhere, is that, you know, we weren't a major population centre but my brother he wasn't going to let that lie he went no 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 that radar dome is a genuine target but this is the brother that told me that elderberries would kill me and when I ate someone said well they haven't killed me he said no no they stay in your system and kill you in 12 years time so I spent from the age of about six to 20 thinking i was going to die of elderberries but being too ashamed to tell anybody and he said no that radar dome would be a target so they drop a nuclear bomb on that and we die from the fallout from that so there was that in one said and actually when i brought it up on stage recently this guy said and i said oh i lived in this place there was this thing and he went yeah that's the one that's on the it's a clear it's a this now and it used to be that and I was like I don't know how you know this but anyway he was very plausible and I quizzed him afterwards and it's because he used to work for the Ministry of Defence or something and I said so was my brother just winding me up he said no no that would definitely have been bombed (laughs) in a nuclear holocaust but the war game was shot in stark black and white documentary style I think Michael Aspel's in it so you have real people playing the news reporters and it starts off like a sort of public information film and it's got narration of saying and I remember the flash into negative to show what would happen if there was an explosion and then basically it's a very sort of starkly shot documentary of what happens when society collapses and i remember that you know there's an interview with one person who's a dad who says you know uh, we'd have looked forward you know wanted to look forward to my children growing up and that's not going to happen now because the inference is you know they've all been contaminated in the fallout so they're all going to die i think there's a bit where it's inferred some soldiers have shot either some of their comrades or some other innocent people who are beyond saving and it was pretty grim but because it's also from the old days it had that thing of being old and dark and you know black and white and so it had the kind of inherited horror of the universal horror films and all those programs that we watched that were old that everyone was dead from and all of that and I watched it and then I went to bed and I was so scared I actually went into my sister's room and we're not really that kind of sort of family where we open up to each other or anything like that and I said to my sister can I sleep in here tonight because I am really scared and she very sweetly let me sleep on the floor of her room which I've never had to do for anything before or since and her words of comfort to me where I said please tell me that that's not going to happen and the best she could muster was well no it probably will but probably not for a bit and I remember thinking I suppose if I get to 21 I'll have had a decent life and i felt that that was all i could probably hope for because we were in the shadow of armageddon and the bbc helpfully reminded us of this by showing things like the war game which i've never watched since and i have to say is the most terrifying thing i have ever seen and it deeply affected Well, there's an interesting
2: me. detail about how it got shown then, which I'll come back to. But I think, looking back at this now, I mean, looking back at the whole thing, don't get me wrong, it was a real genuine fear that people had every day. But I also think there was profit in scaremongering over it. And even the BBC, trying to do a respectful anniversary season, trying to treat it seriously, I still think this week, having it stripped across Five Nights, calling it after the bomb. You know, a lot of the rest <laughs> of it was quite serious. A lot of debates. There was a documentary where Leonard Chan, who obviously was you know very heavily involved in the war effort visited Nagasaki and apparently his conclusion I've never seen it but his conclusions are quite controversial and there was also a repeat of threads which anyone who follows me will know is a real bet in the war of mine because it invites such adulation for something that I don't think is quite as good as a drama as people make it out to be and there is also additional myths around it one of them directly involving this repeat which is it was listed as a revised repeat of some TV listings and there always been this idea that it had been cut and all kinds of things from the original transmission have been cut out and lost forever all it was was in the scenes with Vicky O'Keefe playing the daughter grown up yeah in the original yeah. cut there were some close-ups of her where you can see fillings in her teeth and the director didn't notice that until so it was broadcast and thought oh she wouldn't have them and went back and re-edited ah. it for this repeat it engenders all these wild kind of rumours and hysterics where other better things have never been repeated I mean I won't go into this Again, a couple of years ago, somebody who's got nothing to do with archive television wrote a column about threads for a newspaper in which they tried to make a conspiracy out of the fact that it would only been repeated, like, what, five or six times? I'm like, <laughs> when was the last time you saw Joe's Ark that Dennis Potter play?
5: Yeah, or Deadhead.
2: Anything like that. You know, there are all these series that never, never get shown, and sometimes the things that overshadow them. I also think it's about Ghostwatch. Admittedly, although that doesn't get repeated, often don't quite deserve that prominence over other things. but that's a little bit of soapbox off me but I wanted to just say that the main mover behind getting the war game clear for broadcast was the same person who the second he got in a position where he could speaking to Dennis Potter again scheduled Brimstone and Treacle for broadcast so have been suppressed since 1975 Michael Grade now I know he's seen this, the enemy yeah. of any TV enthusiast because he cancelled Doctor Who when let's be honest anyone would have cancelled it in that position and he had the temerity to check that Brass Eye was legally <laughs> possible to broadcast he's kind of used as the enemy but he's also got that streak
5: of championing art well i mean even a broken clock that <laughs> uh, tells the right time twice a day no i mean i could looking at the history of doctor who, i mean I, for me what angers me about grade is the arrogance with which he dispensed his power and the arrogance with which he conducted himself afterwards and there was plenty that could have been done to doctor who to revive it and you try creating a series that you know creates resonant cultural iconography and blah blah you know all those well-rehearsed things about doctor who. But it's much easier to say it's not star wars can it and then be a prick about it for the rest of your life but he's still a very good television executive in many other areas and i think opening up the archive of stuff that has been withheld is a very interesting thing to do because it helps us measure where you're at where we've come from and as i say even what year is this 85 July, is
2: 1985. It?
5: So even as an 11-year-old i'm clearly there interested in the history of television because it was the fact that i was watching something that had been stopped from being broadcast that particularly lured me to it although i've you know i've always been interested in the sort of dystopian future or a survival you know, post-Holocaust survival because that brings up lots of dramatic potentialities and you always put yourself in the position of one of the survivors and how would you cope? And, you know, that's a very compelling idea of storytelling that you can put yourself within or, you know, fantasise about, if you like. And I think there's something about the fact that it's newsreel and it's faux documentary. It's Peter Watkins, Is is it Peter Watkins? Who'd done Culloden. It filmed the Battle of Culloden, but like it was a sort of piece of reportage and newsreel and that sort of thing. There's something interesting about news footage and although this is faux news footage, that you don't quite get the fact that that man's telling a news camera that he's a bit sad about that he's a bit sad that's underselling he's sad about the loss of potential of his kids growing up or whatever is very different to seeing if you'd seen that situation played out amongst a family dynamic it gives it an extra sort of repressed emotion that gives it a slightly different it's a slightly different angle to telling the story because of the way we filter ourselves and the way that we speak to news cameras and the way that news cameras capture things in the way that dramatic cameras don't so I think it was a really clever and I think that's why it's almost scary because what we see on the news is real we believe what we see on the news so the fact that this is shot like a news report and I wonder if that's what made me stay awake at night, whereas I think if I'd seen those scenes played out as though they were, you know, three people in a bombed-out kitchen in a multi-camera studio, it wouldn't have been quite the same.
2: I think it's interesting that the very fact that Ludovic Kennedy presented this week of programming, because he's one of those sort of presenters that you just don't get anymore, where, the best way to put it is, a friendly face on a very serious person. Because he had this whole thing about, he presented things like Did You See, which is the BBC Two Show where you know they go behind the scenes of ever decreasing circles, and then A.A. Gill or somebody would talk about how they hadn't liked EastEnders. He did things like he presented A Life in Pieces, where Peter Cook was interviewed in character as Sir Arthur Streep Griebling about the 12 Days of Christmas. But he also had this very long career of campaigning over miscarriages of justice and writing well, books about it. police corruption and so on. He seems a very incongruous these days, they would have somebody like I don't know, Nogam and Shetty maybe would introduce something like this, but it was considered the done thing in those days late on but still primetime BBC One get a very serious man in there not just because he was a man because he was serious I think
5: yeah but I like that I yearn for those days where instead of saying not only in our presenters but in our presenting we have to come to you I much prefer the idea of going here's somebody really clever who knows their shit shut up and listen to them and I do not mind having deference to people that know more than I do and I'm happy to put myself in their hands if they're able and educated and kennedy yeah he was one of the wasn't he i think we liked him in our house because he was an avowed anti-capital punishment man wasn't he and you know in the mid 80s lest we forget society was very polarized and you know it was sort of kinnock versus thatcher which is (laughs) right-wing conservative party and a left-wing labor party if you vote labor you want nuclear disarmament you know there were very stark choices and the country seemed very divided on are you for nuclear or not i remember those i remember we had quite a radical teacher at school because he had the nuclear power nine dank or whatever car sticker on his car that was seen to be quite controversial for a teacher to do that and there were often votes weren't there to reintroduce capital punishment there was stark polarization on issues that would have had a genuine alteration on society had they gone one way or the other it was quite a scary time i mean i was 11 so i was scared of everything you know i was scared of the older boys at school and, and all that but i seem to remember having but this may be my personal disposition. Quite a knotted stomach for quite a lot of the 80s. I suppose the good
2: thing about a theme season on a terrifying subject is that it's actually quite easy to avoid if you don't want to see any of it, but as writer the Cale recalled, you weren't always liable to find much lighter fare elsewhere on television in the 80s, especially where the Grange Hill pupil got their collar felt for being light-fingered.
1: Oh, Ronnie Bertles, what were you up to? Yeah, she was caught shoplifting. Tragic, absolutely tragic storyline in Grange Hill in 1988. I felt so so badly for Ronnie at the time. And it stayed with me.
2: Well, I remember it being really jarring in the sense that let's just say this is when had just started its decline. It wasn't quite noticeable yet, but they brought in that terrible new arrangement of the theme tune with those weird graphics of it's like a graph paper school book with Phil Cool drawn on it and things they were trying to be up to date and it wasn't working and the characters became a bit more bit more universal, a bit less quirky but mm. Roddy and Company were holdovers from like the quite brutal early 80s Eerie. Yeah. they were around at the time of Zamo Gate and so on and yeah. the, the interesting thing was, they had done shoplifting storylines before and fairly sure there was a very early one with Kathy Hargreaves and Madeleine Tanner and it came up, you know probably once a year, every year and it would be, somehow they'd be overheard talking about having nicked some lipstick or something and it would be mm. dealt with by Bullet Baxter would say and what do you think, the poor shopkeeper has got to, do you think he can just produce money from thin air to replace what you've stolen? No sir No sir. You know, that'll be here, that'd be the moral to That'd be yeah. how it's dealt with. But this went really serious. The police got involved. And Mrs. McCluskey was seen visibly panicking about it, given the police yeah. involvement. And it's so much bigger. And the interesting thing was, which I'll come back to in a second, that she wasn't a character who would normally have shoplifted. She was a goody two-shoes. She was the one who later went heavy in on the animal rights activism and went into the school with the were doing vivisections. And I hate imitating the sort of deadpan voice that the poor actors who played it would use, but... She went into the school and said, stop this cruelty now. (laughs) (laughs) In a really flat way. But I will say that it's used a really good effect in this. When the police are questioning her, it gives a real sense of panic of like, I didn't expect this to happen. The fact that she's replying in this withdrawn monotone, it really kind of hits harder than you'd think.
1: I think that's why it worked so well and why it stayed with me. And it had that effect because, yeah, you wouldn't expect someone like Ronnie to, to do this. And it just kind of, I think, had more of an effect that it was someone like her who's doing it rather than the real bad girl. She basically, you know, she was taunted by the other girls, by Callie, Helen, and the other one whose name I can never
2: remember. Georgina. Georgina. That's the interesting thing about it was the story I actually came out of, I don't think they made it clear enough, but that Helen and Georgina had been Imelda Davis's gang with Sharon, who was the muscle who just disappeared. (laughs) I've always wondered what happened there. But the thing was, with Imelda basically being withdrawn from school for being an undiagnosed psychopath, But, you know, that was the extremes that Grange Hill used to go to. They were looking to make new friends because they were the naughty girls. Helen was the street kid, basically, the Cockney Loudmouth. Georgina was like the footballer's wives one and to them, nicking stuff from shops was just second nature but in part of trying to weirdly reach out to Ronnie as a new friend but not you know, they got Callie on board because Callie was always a bit rebellious Mm. and obviously Callie was Ronnie's mate from very young childhood so they drew her in with the right kind of, oh yeah, you can just get free stuff and you know, if you're really cool about it no one will notice and you know, she wasn't cool about it and she was noticed (laughs) so that in itself is an interesting storyline but also, there's the fact that the One person who took her side was Mr Bronson there's always that thing about he was strict he stood for no mm. highfalutin artisticness and so on but he was a fundamentally decent teacher who cared about the pupils he did well I mean I mentioned on here before there was that mm. one where when Zamo stole Roland's alarm clock before the French oral <laughs> exam to buy heroin with <laughs> money from the alarm clock but Roland turned up late and Mr Bronson was begging the examiner to stay saying you don't understand this boy he doesn't have much in his life but he's really talented at French but here he recognised it wasn't something she'd normally do and there's a lovely scene where he was basically saying we all make mistakes when we're young the important thing is to realize you've made the mistake
6: yeah, and um, yeah. you know
2: carry on with what you do best and you know I think that would affect the kids because it wasn't expected
1: yeah I mean that was the thing wasn't it with the teachers from Grange Hill that ultimately they were seen as humans they were caricatures at the time but actually ultimately were good and decent and it always had that kind of theme running through it didn't it them kind of being on the side of the kids I think the storyline the timing of it as well for me was key because it was in 1988 I started secondary school in 1988 so this was on before I started so I think it was maybe kind of spring time, you know, that year when I was about to kind of go to secondary school in, in the autumn. And it really frightened me. I was thinking, oh my god, is, it, is this what school's going to be like? You know, I'm going to be coerced into shoplifting by, you know, rebellious girls and that kind of thing. There was obviously you know, a bit of location shooting down the precinct to kind of engineer the storyline.
2: Always have really knackered film and location <laughs> stuff on Hill.
1: It really was, yeah.
2: But that's the kind of, you know,
1: it was very obviously reminiscent of the places that, you know, you as a normal kid growing up would go to. And she goes and she basically shoplifts a rubbish jumper from the Selfridge it's not even anything dead exciting that she takes and is caught taking and she's casted off by the store manager a really wooden kind of performance I'm the manager here and I think you have something that belongs to us <laughs> And like it's taken off And then this kind of snowball effect Of the graveness of the situation And it kind of It's cut in between that And the other ridiculous Some sort of ridiculous Kind of spaghetti western type Storyline with Ziggy In the back shed Yeah so the, you know The kind of like it with this thing Back at the school Is like comedy kind of thing You keep going back to Ronnie And she's kind of Taken into the store office And then the police arrive And then she's carted Through the streets It's like medieval talk She's carted through the precinct by these officers She has to get in the patrol car And she's driven off And then she arrives at the police Station. It's all very grave, and there's grave music playing, and you know she's kind of like quiet, and she's just kind of going through this process. And then she's put in the interview room, and the end of the episode is her sat there, obviously in the police interview room, waiting for her terrible fate, and it's just her sobbing. You could audibly hear her and see her sobbing, and then the title start. You know, and you have like the, that weird juxtaposition of the title music playing really quiet, while you just hear her sobbing and like her teary face just kind of large and on the screen, and then there's like this freeze frame. Thank mm-hmm. And her sobbing face. They really go to town on the kind of the terrible situation that she, she's got herself in. And she's just, yeah, perfect for it, because she is quite a, a zombie-like character, kind of just sitting through this. And I always remember her freeze frame face kind of crying and thinking, I'm not going to shoplift now. You know, you know, I might end up like
2: Ronnie. Well, what I was wondering was, I have tried to find this, and sadly I can't, but this was, we were a couple of years into Broom-covered era, Children's BBC by then. So I assume either Andy Crane or Debbie Flint did that thing after, it, where they're looking sort of sideways at the you know that the monitor next to them with the programs on where you oh, see yeah. the countdown clock looking at that with the finger against their chin and then turn back to the camera and say "Hmm, something to think about there and then move <laughs> on to <laughs> move on to introducing galloping galaxies or something
1: Oh yeah absolutely it definitely had an effect and i you know i thought that's what school was gonna be like when i started it wasn't i mean there, there were kids who shoplifted and my secondary school experience was a quite a bizarre experience i think it's quite a shock to little old innocent me but yeah it was it never quite reached the heights of being arrested in the precinct
2: if you've got no experience of the british school system or of grange hill you might be a little bit puzzled by that and thinking they wouldn't have done it that way under grassy junior high in fact somehow on that whoever shoplifted would have got in more trouble and yet less trouble at the same time and then there'd be about a week of discussions about the issues raised in it. That said if you weren't yet old enough for the teen angst of Steph, Spike, Joey, Jeremiah, Esquire and company then as novelist Genevieve Jenner recalled there was a show that you could have watched that was not in any way copied from a certain other show of the time.
7: It was a regional television show found in Seattle, which is where I grew up. And it was on in the late 70s and early 80s. All around the United States until sort of the deregulation of television in the Reagan years, there would be all kinds of little regional television shows and programming for children. And this was one of them with puppets and sort of teaching little life lessons and singing and so on. And it was hosted by a woman called Marnie Nixon, who is better known to some people as The woman who was the singing voice for a number of movie musicals, she did the voice for Audrey Hepburn in My Fair Lady, Deborah Carr in uh, The King and I, and she also did this. And so, yeah, it was her and some puppets.
2: Yes, these puppets. I've got to get this out of the way. (laughs) Now, there was a certain other programme that started not long before this did, and it looks as though they didn't get a designer or a puppet maker to do these. They got a child and said, draw Muppets. And the kid said, don't you mean the Muppets? And said, no, just Muppets without the third the start. It's like somebody's bad dream about the Muppets. It's
7: maybe someone's craft project of the Muppets. Maybe they decided to draw a picture and see if they could copy it. You know, it was before YouTube tutorials that could show you how to do things. So they, yeah, kind of created a discount version of Bert from Sesame Street. His name was Norbert, as I recall. And I remember that he was kind of... So he's like, he was
2: Norbert. Yeah,
7: and I just remember that he was kind of. This sounds terrible to say about a puppet, but he seemed like he didn't have a good handle on emotional regulation. <laughs> And I understand he's supposed to be childlike, but he could be kind of passive aggressive and prone to, you know, losing his cool easily.
2: See, I've got no frame of reference really for this at all, apart from there are a couple of fragmentary clips on YouTube and a couple of pages where people talk about it very, very earnestly. Not the kind of, I was entertained slash terrified by this as a child. Just they talk very straight-facedly about its educational credentials and all the awards that it won and so on. I'm surprised it hasn't left a larger footprint, given that apparently there was a theme single that's the one thing i found out i don't know any other merchandise who would want to own that song on a record i don't know but you know it was big enough for that i think it
7: would be something for children who would just want to listen to it over and over and over again again before the days of just on-demand streaming it was here you could put this on and calm the child for about you know 20 seconds you know if you talk to people a certain age who grew up there you could probably put it on and there would be some sort of response like oh my goodness i had a kind of a different response to the theme because watching it as a small child I would watch the opening theme and there would be this one part where a child would leap into a pile of hay and they would bury him and then the song would go on and the children would go on elsewhere and I would spend this eternity of anxiety going what happened to that child oh my god is this child <laughs> suffocating you know someone get that poor child out from under the hay and so when I would hear the theme I would just kind of get all wound up and nervous but then I would want to watch the show so you can could probably, you know, go to any of my therapists and they would go back to that moment and go, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's where you were broken.
2: I am fascinated, though, by the whole, as you mentioned, there was that scenario where there would be regional television in America that was huge in the region and not really seen. I mean, apparently Boomerang was shown in a couple of other countries. It was never shown over here, I don't think, but not really in other yeah. American states. And it's like that very odd thing about, because I'm a huge fan of, you know, the 60s garage bands, the sort of bands that are halfway between the British Invasion and psychedelic music. Oh, yeah. There is that weird situation with that. Where you would get bands like, say, the E-Types or the Night Crawlers that were huge in their home state. They could walk down the street and then, oh, yes, you know, yeah, cross the state line. Like and nobody knew who they were. And that seems, oh, you know, absolutely. coming from this yeah. miserable little island, that seems very odd to me. <laughs> Although we did have ITV used to have a regional structure where it had its own broadcaster for. I never quite understood how they divided up the UK. It seemed to be quite arbitrary, but they were required to make kind of a specified amount of regional regional programming, which did include children's programs. I've gone here before, Justin Lewis talked about Orbit, which was in Wales, which was presented by a man called Alan Taylor and a very frightening-looking squeaking alien called Chester, but one (laughs) that I always remember from the Granada region, Hey, It's My Birthday Too, which I've always wanted to bring up on here, which is basically one of the continuity announcers. It was to do with some anniversary of Granada, and if it was your birthday, within a certain time frame, you could write in and they'd say it was your birthday too. And I was furious because whenever it started it ended the day before my birthday
7: oh that's so heartbreaking
2: <laughs> i resented this program but, you know i even remember the trailer for it saying you know if your birthday is between these dates right in i remember the theme music which is this quacking synthesizer thing i remember it had it opened with animation of a boy sort of walking down the street like shouting you know with his hands round his mouth obviously it was his birthday lots of passers-by sort of well-wished him and the policeman did that knees bend thing <laughs> they haven't done since the 80s that tradition seems be gone everywhere now
7: which is a shame because you know you would have your own you know sort of little identity to where you were there was another element to boomerang that you know kind of has a funny connection for me is that my mother didn't really like me to watch the show and it came about that she had worked with Marty nixon and she had found that miss nixon was a challenging personality to work with <laughs> and so to see her on the television and my, ch- you know, and her child enjoying this very, you know, happy-go-lucky woman, it just it didn't sit well with her. And I do recall her saying of Miss Nixon that she was a, a second-rate Julie Andrews. So, I mean, I felt kind of conflicted between my mother's opinions and also a bunch of puppets and some singing, which maybe makes me sound a little bad that I could, you know, sorry, mother, I can't be loyal, there's
2: puppets. Well, I did find out about Marnie Nixon, I never knew this, was that she was Andrew Gold. Mother, yes, as in the seventies never let her slip away hit maker,
7: yes. I mean, this is the man that gave us the Golden Girls theme. He is a good and pure man, so she did bring good to this world.
2: What is really disturbing me, though, is the idea that obviously this ran for a number of years in the Seattle area, and it was clearly very widely loved, Oh yeah. even if your mother didn't like it. So, (laughs) that must mean that people like members of Nevada and some of the people involved in Starbucks must have been watching it. Oh, yes,
7: yes. And I remember that... I think a few years back, there'd been some rumor that the puppets had been sold at a garage sale, you know, just discarded and people were truly upset. And it it turned out it was just another sad Muppet-like puppet that just sort of looked similar. And that the puppets actually did end up somewhere good and safe. And that's known as the Museum of History and Industry in Seattle. So it has a lot of regional objects and memories that mean a lot to people. So the puppets did end up in a good place.
2: Tristan Novoselic and Dave Grohl might well have been watching Boomerang, but if they were, they never actually managed to get Norbert involved in any of Nirvana's videos. The 80s, however, was a bit of a boom time for having internationally owned celebrities actually acting in pop videos. Although, as comedian, musician, novelist, and just about everything else Mitch Ben points out, it's difficult to work out what was actually the first example
6: of this. What I want to talk about is this is a bit vague, because it's not a specific thing or a specific instance, but it's a thing that started to happen in the 80s, and I've been trying to figure out when this started. It's when recognisable, and particularly internationally recognisable actors, start turning up in rock videos. Now, obviously, you had things like British celebs turning up in British rock videos, like Diana Dawes turning up in Prince Charming is the most obvious one that I can think of. And that in and of itself is pretty groundbreaking at the time, because I'm trying to think if there'd been an instance of a British sleb turning up in a British pop video before that, and I can't think of one off the top of my head. The first time I can remember somebody I would regard as a proper movie star turning up in a rock video, and I remember seeing this and being quite startled to see him there, was Donald Sutherland in Kate Bush's Cloud Busting. Cloud Busting is a fascinating record because it's based on the memoirs of the son of Wilhelm Reich, who was, to put it mildly, a mad scientist. I did a, a podcast about Wilhelm Reich, you know, Izzy Lawrence's Z-List Deadlist, about some of minor historical characters who've been forgotten for one reason or another. Well, I did one about Wilhelm Reich because in much the same way that some of the stuff I've brought up on these shows is interesting because it's not so much faded from the public consciousness has been deliberately removed from the public consciousness. Wilhelm Reich is very much of a piece with that. He was pretty nuts and some of the stuff he was coming out with was toxic to the point of that it actually had to be kind of (laughs) deliberately suppressed rather than just ignored. But he claimed to have invented a rainmaking machine and cloud busting is based on the memoirs of his son about his mad old dad who claimed he made a rainmaking machine. And so I'm guessing that's kind of meant to be Wilhelm Reich that Donald Sutherland is playing in a cloud busting video. I remember being quite startled to see a proper movie star in a rock video, and then after that it seemed to happen on a fairly regular basis. I've done the timeline and I've established that Papa Don't Preach comes out after cloud Busting, and of course Papa Don't Preach, Papa is played by Danny Aiello. But I'm also thinking to myself, yeah, but was Danny Aiello that much of a movie star at the time? Because he obviously subsequently became one with things like Do the Right Thing and Hudson Hawk, but is he not just a fairly obviously Italian middle-aged actor such as you would cast to play Madonna's dad? You know, I don't know. I mean, what? Was is the first one? I mean, have you done any research into this? When's the earliest one you can find? Well- a Proper it... movie star in rock video. Uh...
2: I have only got back as far as cloud busting as well, because one thing I immediately thought was there's bound to be loads that we just don't think of. And the first thing I thought of was, you know, in the video for Generals and Majors by XTC, they've got Richard Branson being the general and/or major,
6: and I thought bands
2: like XTC must have had, you know, in the kind of dinosaurs capacity people. I can't find anything at all. There's cloud busting. Then there's Experiment Four by Kate Bush the following year,
6: which has got Richard Vernon and Hugh Laurie and yeah, yeah, Hugh. he turns up in a few actually. he, he turns up in things like walking on broken yes, glass yeah, by annie he, lennox you know, basically you know. it's that
2: block yeah. out of canon or not because he's basically
6: the prince Regent. he is pretty much yeah yeah exactly i did actually notice one which i'm not sure whether it counts or not but what it was is it's somebody i didn't recognize at the time but have subsequently recognized but again i'm not sure if he's exactly an international movie star do you remember him by ultravox the video consists entirely of people being tempted by Satan Satan turns up and offers people, you know, offers a politician success or offers a businessman great financial wealth or offers somebody immense romantic success it's only when I've subsequently seen it I've realised that Satan is Oliver Tobias,
2: who was huge at that point,
6: of the stud fame yeah, well he was huge in Britain and I'm thinking, but but would he have been recognisable internationally or not so I still don't know whether that trumps Donald Sutherland and cloud busting. But now you think nothing of it. Now rock, you know, movie stars turn up in rock videos all the time. Well, the next major one
2: I could think of after Kate Bush apparently getting there first was You Can Call Me Al. How Jim many Case. kids thought Chevy Chase was Paul Simon because <laughs> time, Chevy Chase wasn't that well known over here at that point. Unless, no, not really. Unless you had the no. video, which not everyone did. Unless you have seen Caddyshack or Caddyshack Two.
6: Or Fletch. is was the other one. Yeah. yeah, Fletch was the other one. But you're right now. A lot of their kids will have not known what either Chevy Chase or Paul Simon looked like, and that joke would have been completely lost on them. They wondered, you know, who's the short guy looking bored? <laughs> The other thing that did happen a lot, I think from the 70s
2: onwards, which doesn't really count as far as I'm concerned, sometimes, for the theme song for a big movie, the cast would appear in the video or previously the promo film, but that's not quite the same, because it's been
6: done. That's not the quite same thing, it's like, no, yeah, you're not turning up, you're not taking on a, a rock video as an acting job, it's a bit of just cross-promotion, like Christoph Lombert turning up in the video for Princes of the Universe, well, for example. Well, it, you know, it has you know. always made me wonder, I do genuinely
2: ponder this, when you got things where well, you got like that, for example, where you got nothing can stop us now by Starship, or spies like us, or a view to a kill, or yeah. sweet freedom, which people forget
6: was from Running Skirt, or Goonies are good by yeah, yeah. Lauper.
2: Where that happens, where the artist in the theme song interacts with the cast in character, in costume, on set, is that part of the movie's expanded universe? Did Nick <laughs> really turn off Hollywood toes in Mannequin? <laughs>
6: Yeah, I mean, because that was a whole other thing was the hit, re- you know, because obviously you've got, you know, Take My Breath Away and Top Gun. And, and eventually it became to the point where you couldn't release a major release movie without a tie-in single because the video on MTV was going to sell your movie for you. To the point where they were sort of commissioning stuff. Like, you know, obviously while well, they commissioned it, it's our bloody album off Prince for Batman. That was very much, you know, Warner Brothers' idea was to commission Prince to do a whole album of songs for Batman. And now they
2: can't
6: reissue it. <laughs> and now Christ they Prince can't reissue it exactly but then you end up with the whole thing coming into the 80s and 90s of the two soundtrack albums you know you get the actual you know for example Batman was one of the first ones you got the Danny Elfman soundtrack album because it's some of the best movie music ever composed and you have the Prince album or you have songs from and inspired by well funnily enough actually one where it kind of buried it we've just alluded to it was the Michael Kamen score for Highlander I don't think was ever officially released because all the songs were on Queen's kind of magic albums So the songs all came out on the Queen album, but nobody ever, I don't think, I've got a bootleg CD of it somewhere, but Michael Kamen's actual score for Highlander, which was great, I don't think that ever actually officially came out. If you've got all the trouble of recording it, you might want to get your money's worth out of it. But then, you know, back in those days, actually putting a record out was kind of expensive. These days, you can just stick it up on Spotify and if anybody wants it, it's there, and if they don't, they don't. But yeah, that was sort of the birth of the 80s of the dual soundtrack album, the songs from and inspired by and the actual score, you know, on two separate records. But
2: like you say, it's difficult to determine what actually qualifies because one of the first things that occurred to me was Keanu Reeves in the video for Rush Rush by Paul Larampton.
6: Yes, yes. Yeah, Apparently, he's kind of playing James Dean, isn't that he? That
2: was kind of in motion before he really took off, though. Ah,
6: huh, OK. And then you get, you know, all things like, you know, Mickey Rourke turning up in that Enrique Iglesias video not that long ago. and It's, it's fairly standard now. Oh, so, I mean, just
2: remembered a really early one.
6: That I completely forgot oh, what's, about Oh, what, what have you just remembered? What?
2: Who tries to arrest Shane McGowan that starts a fairy tale in New York?
6: It's Matt Dillon. It's Matt Dillon, yeah. You're quite right, yeah. So that is a bit... Oh my God, that mighty—no, well, that's '87. That's not before cloud busting. Just for a minute, I thought that might even be before cloud busting, but you're quite right. Again, now Matt Dillon. All right, Rumble Fish had been out, so yeah, no, he would have been a proper movie star by then. That counts. That counts. Yeah, you're right. The copper who jane McGann at the beginning of Fairy Tale is Matt Dillon. That's—I've completely forgotten but about that. But I wonder if the
2: problem is that you know, at that point, it's changed now, and if you look at any actor on Wikipedia now you will see if you scroll down they have a section headed music videos you do think when did that become a thing that was listed alongside their films and TV appearances but in the 80s by and large with the obvious exceptions like Hello by Lionel Richie generally videos for pop songs were mini dramas over here and in America it was mainly live footage and we didn't really come up with many homegrown internationally known stars to speak of at that point no
6: I've just thought of one of somebody who was in a rock video and subsequently became famous but were not a big deal at the time Gold by Spandau Ballet that little gold-painted nymph that Tony Hadley is pursuing around the temple that's a 16-year-old Sadie Frost
2: similarly is Courtney Cox
6: yeah. in Dancing in the Dark oh yes, Courtney Cox in Dancing in the Dark yeah, absolutely that was the first thing, first thing anybody really noticed to it. the girl that Bruce pulls out the audience in Dancing in the Dark is Courtney Cox so there's been a few instances of people well, I mean that if anything Courtney Cox is an example of somebody getting famous because they're in a rock video because she started to get cast in sort of you know quite high profile things immediately after that Because it's just like, check it out, it's the girl from the Springsteen video. It's probably actually got Masters of the Universe. That's an example of somebody, I think, getting famous through being in a rock video. Oh, I've got a
2: possible, although... Oh, Oh, have you
6: got... Go on, go on.
2: It's speculative, but Rick Mayall did a lot of pop videos in the mid-80s.
6: He did, now... Did he do anything
2: of potato cloud busting? Because the only one I can think of is Peter Gunn, by the Art of Noise, which, if anyone has never seen that, that is one of the best things Rick's ever done.
6: Oh, it's hilarious. That I think was I could be mistaken my mind is telling me that was very early 86 which would make it about six months after Peter but God. did he do
2: anything before that I don't think that could
6: I be don't know but again that's worth pointing out that this is somebody who was a British TV star because Aid Edmondson's in the video for Sunglasses by Tracy Ullman. now that might have been before cloud busting but again Aid Edmondson at the time was a British TV star with no kind of international recognition you know now Keith Martin Olivia well, Zaglanicki no no they might now say it's the commander of the dreadnought from The Last Jedi <laughs> but you know they might. Tracy Ullman was a great one for the celebrity cameo because of course you had Neil Kinnock and Paul McCartney and My Girl and, and They Don't Know she was a great one for the celebrity cameos and I think I mean McCartney you know that's an internationally famous person but it's not an actor what was striking about Donald Sutherland is he's not just a sleb he's not just a kind of renter face he's you know a very legit established movie star turning up in this rock video in 1985 he's still I think the first one that I can think of actually we now think the first example of this might either
2: be Leonard Nimoy in going down to Liverpool by the Bengals or John Hurton take it away by Paul McCartney but perhaps predictably we can't decide whether either of them count due to the criteria that we set ourselves Similarly, I'm uncertain whether David Hasselhoff ought to be more accurate Zardu Hasselfrau in Guardians Inferno by the Guardians of the Galaxy might count for so many reasons, but while you're thinking that over, here's a couple of recent highlights from my Marvel podcast, It's Good Except It Sucks. In a minute you'll hear Gary talking about the 1970s TV series of The Incredible Hulk, but first, here's me as the guest talking to guest host David Smith about the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special, and a certain other holiday special that possibly not many people look on quite as favourably as I do. What was your overall thoughts of the holiday special? Because obviously this is a reference to the Star Wars holiday special which is considered one of the worst pieces of media ever made, which led me to be a little have a little trepidation about the Guardians one but what were your thoughts on it? Well, anyone who's listened to basically I was going to say more than one of these, but you know a quarter of one of these will know how much of a fan I am of the Guardians of the Galaxy, how much I love those first two movies, the second one in particular. But I was excited about this in the word go because obviously you look at the title, you've got Guardians of the Galaxy, you've got Holiday Special, so sort of the Christmassy and the self-aware way, but also, as you mentioned, Holiday Special, which to me, you know, you mentioned the Star Wars Holiday Special, it's wrong to say that I love it, as that really would just be being contrary for the sake of it, but I love the idea of it, because I've got a thing about notions of canon, in inverted commas, and people get really finickety about it, it's kind of a relatively recent invention. You know, this idea that something should be absolutely Watertight to The specifications of the people who've appointed themselves the best at liking it. That's where this stupid fuss about whether Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and Netflix shows count as part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe comes from. It's people who want to be in charge in a silly box ticking way. The fact that the Star Wars Holiday Special exists, and I should just point out as well, it's only gained this notoriety since about 1998 or 9. Because prior to that, for anyone who's not seen it, it's basically, at the height of Star Wars Mania, it's a TV variety show it's a kind of spectacular where some star wars things happen with the cast a lot of not star wars related things happen with b arthur and jefferson airplane and actually were they jefferson starship by that point all manner of things like that and some very odd things like you meet chewbacca's family celebrating is it life day it's a mess but it went out once in america not over here And for a long time, it was one of those things you would just see mentioned as something that happened with no context to it. And as well, my favourite era of Star Wars. There was a time in the late 80s, because obviously when they first came out, I was obsessed with them like any kid that age. But there was a brief couple of years where Star Wars was yesterday's thing. Where during that time, all that came out, I think, was the droids cartoon, the Ewoks cartoon, those Lando Carissian novels, which are completely forgotten now, and it was like nobody cared anymore. You could get the toys for literally pence in. Bargain bins and Woolworths, and they'd been the big Christmas present, you know, just two years earlier. And it went through until whenever it was in the early 90s that George Lucas did the special editions, you then got the Beastie Boys and people talking about Star Wars in kind of hipper terms. But there's that brief phase where it's was completely forgotten. But that's kind of a sidetrack because the holiday special just wasn't known about at all. And then it, I think that somebody who still had an off air of it, did a web page just describing it with screen grabs, and it kind of spiralled out from there. But To me, looking back... Obviously, I didn't see the whole of holiday special. I'm sure the millions of kids in America who just watched it and thought, great, more Star Wars. Cynicism only comes into things later. It's like the way, if you got back when the Empire Strikes Back was out, say, for example, not citing I think a personal example here at all, but a C-3PO soap on the road <laughs> That's like a stocking villa at Christmas. <laughs> and it had sort of background biographical information about C-3PO on the box. It was later either disregarded or contradicted. You didn't care. It was more Star Wars. And I can throw in a direct Marvel parallel here which is that when the Fantastic Four cartoon was on over here in the early 80s and Marvel UK brought out a Fantastic Four comic to go with it where it was reprinting the late 70s strips which, you know, really weird. A lot of of Agatha Harkness stories as the one where they have to shut Franklin Richards' brain down. The Shaper of Worlds... Puts them in kind of an invented 50s Americana, but in the cartoon because they couldn't use the Human Torch because we're talking about dimming him as part. What was the Marvel TV universe at that point, which never really took off, and he never came into it. But instead of him, Filmation developed a robot called Herbie, and all I remember thinking at the time watching this cartoon that was very unlike the comics I was reading, thinking they should have Herbie the robot in the comics, yeah. which they later did. And in fact, there's very few characters invented for other media that Marvel haven't used in some capacity. But yeah, that's kind of my feeling of it was that I know James Gunn isn't going to go in sneering at the holiday special. He's going to celebrate in his own way, the very self-aware way, the fact that it exists and I really think he did that because there are even direct nods to the Star Wars holiday special, it. I don't think Bill Bixby really kind of embraced the celebrity side of it but Lou Ferrino was always on things like Game for a Laugh or he was profiling <coughs> the TV Times. You know, you turn over the page from Bruce Forsyth with a chef's hat on making something out of leftovers and <laughs> the Incredible Hulk in his incredible home. See the man behind the green as he really looks, and he'd be doing that, you know, kind of arms outstretched, shrugging thing in this well-appointed room with a big hi-fi. He seemed to be a really big draw over here, and I do wonder if it slightly had the edge in the UK.
0: Yeah, that's very possible. It certainly is one of those shows that I suppose because it was on prime time in this country. It was just one of those things that really got into the public consciousness. You know, you get a lot of you get like Sir Ross Abbott or, or Benny Hill or those sorts of characters would do their take takeoffs of the incredible Hulk, you know, they'd paint themselves green and go around in ripped shirts and it was just one of those things everybody kinda of knew who the Hulk was.
2: And I think that's something that's persisted because one thing that really struck me when I was making notes for this was we have to discuss the end music, the Lonely Man theme, which is that incredibly (laughs) kind of moving, tear-jerking piano piece as David Banner, I keep nearly calling him Bruce, is walking away trying to hitch a ride at the end while Ted Cassidy's voiceover says about how... You know, some kind of philosophical moral about how society will reject those that don't reject society or whatever. And it's amazing that it's like the same way you mentioned The Prisoner and people will know Patrick McGowan chased by a big white balloon. If you play that music to people somehow, even if they've never seen it, they know that's from The Hulk. I remember when it was used at the end of an episode of This Morning with Richard Not Judy, the Stuart Lee and Richard Herring series, Mm. thinking at that point, wow, it's amazing. People just know that music is a reference point. They don't even need to say what it is, but still now they do. And that is astonishing for what was basically, I know it was big, but in its context, it was no bigger than, say, Street Hawk or Simon and Simon in terms of the view of the TV industry. And for it to have lasted that long, that is remarkable, really.
0: This is the thing about it. I mean, like, Like you said before, I've gone back and I've had a look at The Amazing Spider-Man. I've had a look at Doctor Strange. And when I've gone back, I've gone, oh, do you know what? This is actually fairly substandard stuff. I've gone back to The Hulk and I was expecting, you know, special effects of of the time. The pacing of the time is always going to be a bit sort of shonky these days. I was not expecting this thing to be good. And it is actually good. (laughs) Bill Bixby is really good. He's really moving. He feels like he's having real human (laughs) feelings. Lou Ferrigno, is, I mean, he's not given a lot to work with, to be fair. He doesn't even do the roars himself, does he? But you get a real sense of, it's actually not a bad acting job you're getting from Lou Ferrigno. Okay, he's meant to be, you know, this. he's basically playing a toddler, and he's
2: playing it really well. And now for something you might not have heard, I recently joined Tyler Adams on GoonPod, a podcast celebrating all things Peter Sellers, Spike Milligan and Harry Seacum, for a chat about 1959's The Best of the Goon Shows, an EMI LP featuring basically cut-down edits of two radio goon shows which is more or less the first example of mass marketed comedy tie-in merchandise as we know it today and we had a great time chatting about that about what else was on the bbc that day about the pop charts in the 50s but we started with a discussion about what you might have found in your parents record collection my father had and i've got it in front of me now the album the best of the goon shows which somehow survived there was a box of records i was growing up that had belonged to my parents which there was that weird thing in those days that you were supposed to give up things like an interest in music when you started a family i was thinking <laughs> in soul survivors that book about northern soul and the wigan casino one of the sort of original northern soul fans i can't remember his name unfortunately a guy from scotland talks about how he kind of discovered at the same time as a lot of people across the country weirdly this subgenre of soul music because when he was on holiday he met a well Elder who said to him, I'm getting married, so I have to give away my records. Can I give them to you? <laughs> so there was a box of records, and some had survived, some hadn't. There's a lot of comedy stuff like that. Who was it that did there's something called The First Family? Which, you know, very narrow window to do this. It was send-ups of John F. Kennedy and his family, like a full cast recording. I think there were two albums of it. Both hmm. of those had survived. There are a couple of Hancock albums, things like there were some, some Pat Boone records, I assume it was my mother liked. There were quite a few instrumental hit singles, like Jet Harris and Tony Meehan and, you know, the Tornadoes, people like that. A lot of stuff had clearly disappeared over the years. There were defaced Beatle album covers Oh no. The like. And goon wise, there was a broken 78 If I'm Walking Backwards for Christmas. There was Max Geldre's Goon with the Wind with no record in it. Oh. And it took me years and years to find that. But this, which I played because I think, you know, I knew who Spike Milligan was because I've seen them on Jack and Ori and things like that. I was vaguely aware of Peter Sellers. Certainly you I don't know how I knew Who Harry Seeker was Because this would have been Pre-Highway I sort of knew who they were And thought the cover Looked funny And listened to it And I really Really loved it And I love it because On this record It was different With comedy albums In those days Either people re-recorded Existing radio Or television scripts In the studio Usually with George Martin Producing Or They were edited down Like this With an album in mind With a listening experience In mind And it's not It was never quite the same When you got those Full show releases Of things later This is Almost an artefact in its own right And it just absolutely zips along in this form And I loved it And some of the jokes in it Made me almost cry laughing When I was what five, six or something, still make me laugh now in this. And now here's something that you almost certainly won't have heard. You may or may not know that I've recently set up a Patreon where, for a fraction of the amount you have to pay to Elon Musk per month for Twitter Blue, you can get access to all kinds of rare features in the archives, and new commentaries on bizarre 50s and 60s magazine ads, work-in-progress stuff, some exclusive reviews, and occasionally, some audio exclusives, like this commentary on the episode of Trumpden about Nick fish the bill poster hello and oh actually i'm just going to get a little bit ahead of myself here because i just wanted to say that i've always found it interesting that gordon murray chose to retain from camberwick green that three note introduction that's the chime bar thing that you heard just at the start there but he discarded basically anything else that would have been familiar from the opening and closing of camberwick green that the viewers would have known about already i brought in this new branding that was retained for Chickly but doesn't have anything really in common with Camberwick Green. But then again, I don't know about you but I'm actually quite glad that we got this sort of ink block cloud thing rather than the clown. Anyway, this is the Bill Poster, the first episode of Trumpdom, which was originally broadcast on 3rd of January 1967 in BBC One's Watch With Mother Strand. But I associate it more with a showing that took place on New Year's Day 1980, where it is listed in the Radio Times. This is how I remember it, because I used to obsess over the Christmas radio and TV times as a seesaw programme. I think that's the first time that was ever used in print to you know, denote the new name for that slot. And I remember thinking, why is that? What's Seesaw? Well, Seesaw obviously was the sort of more up-to-date contemporary, as I say, branding for that slot that replaced Watch With Mother. And it ran for a couple of years, I think, carried on through to about 1988, 89. It always introduced the programmes with a slide, with a sort of stylised seesaw, with characters. Well, I say characters from each show. It was some like Brick-A-Brack and chock a block all the ones with three-word names, I think. How do you do, actually? No, that's four words, and that had some of the characters on. But anyway, Trumpton had, I think, from a Trumpton annual, The Mer and P.C. Potter. Yes, P.C. Potter, I'll be coming back to that. Sort of looking like he was falling off it. Anyway sorry I've talked all over that fantastic opening sequence where instead of a clown staring murderously at some names on the blackboard I still want to know what his beef with Brian Camp was. But anyway you get Trump done bursting into life for a working day and it's got that real sort of 60s hustle and bustle to it. Almost, when you think about it, it's almost the exact opposite of that half-abandoned, weird London of doing quote marks there that you got in live action around that time, particularly in the likes of films like Blow Up and the outdoor bits in Monty Python's Flying Circus. And there's Chippy Minton, who, it's safe to say, would have had little truck with any notion of swinging London, and not just because he has a little truck himself, boom, boom. So this is Mr. Munnings, the printer, and there's just been, we've just met a little bit of setup business about the fact he's got to print some posters for the Fire Brigade band concert. I don't know if there actually is such a dramatic device as Chekhov's Fire Brigade band concert poster, but if there is, you're seeing it right now. And who didn't love that sort of green croupier's visor that he's got on there? But personally, I always loved any sequence in Trumpton or in Camberwick Green or Chigley, that involved anything mechanical and just look at the attention to detail in that old printing press which do you know it really does look like there used to be a toy printing press made by thomas salter or ideal or someone the sort of thing you'd always get as a sort of supporting feature to your main present at christmas actually i wonder if i got it in 1980 the same year as i noticed the bill poster was flagged up at radio times as a seesaw program And basically it was what it said on, well, the box. It was a printing press and you put the letters in like he's doing and pull a lever and it'd print stuff out for you. But the thing was, they never updated the packaging. And even well into the 80s, the box still had on it what could only be described as two Boris Johnson boys in floral shirts with massive collars they were probably printing two columns to be used depending on whether the referendum tipped towards leave or remain and i just want to say a very quick word i'm sure i'll have more to say about it a bit about freddie phillips's songs which are absolutely brilliant As you can hear there he's used basically a variety of percussion instruments to sort of make the noises of a printing press and tie it in with the music i mean isn't that just amazing that's like what people like george martin were doing at the time but done for a children's program that you know probably wasn't taken that seriously and here it is our first ever glimpse of Trumpton fire station and it's actually a little odd to think back now and think about just how sort of exciting and futuristic that light-up map with the switches and the controls under it really looked at the time we didn't really know what it was to be honest with you and they'd probably be able to control all of it via an app now but one really interesting detail about it that you'll only really be aware of if you've ever seen any of the photos in the Trumpton storybooks is that that map isn't actually a map of Trumptonshire at all. It's a map of Florence, and it's actually in Italian. So whether they ever ended up having to help hang Botticelli's Venus back on the wall, or got caught out by accident when someone overheard Roberto Cavalli saying some antipasti was too hot or something and misunderstood, we just don't know. And there they are, pew pew, Barney McGrew, Cuthbert Dibble and Grubb heading off through the streets of Trumpton on an urgent call out to well collect some posters and gordon murray who obviously was the producer of Trumpton, did once tell me because i interviewed him a couple of times that he got a letter i think sometime in the early 70s from a mother who'd been driven pretty much to her wit's end by her child repeatedly asking her why nobody has any curtains in Trumpton. which to be fair given the attention to detail elsewhere it's a bit of a surprising oversight but even so anyway she asked him if they could quote marks go back and put them in and he sent a polite reply basically saying you know that the films have been made a number of years ago and it just wasn't practical or really even technologically possible but I have to admit that even allowing for the stresses of parenting I was a little taken aback at the entitlement there you know this one thing is inconvenient for me please fix it at your own time and expense you know she could have just not watched Trump done I suppose but also, the apparent belief there that you can dictate what technology does, you know, you can tell it to do what you want it to just because you believe it should be able to. It's a bit like when those coppers show up in Get Back and they try to argue with the Beatles staff that they could just film the rooftop concert with nobody playing anything and nobody singing and dub the sound on later because, as far as they're aware, you can do that with films. And obviously, there are absolutely no parallels with any of that right now. In fact... You could even say there's no match of the day, and there you have it—the main thrust of the plot itself, which is that although Mr. munnings has some reservations, and he says "firemen are firemen and bill posters are bill posters," and again. Isn't that just our debate right now, but the fire brigade aren't going to call on Nick Fisher, the official bill poster to help stick up the poster for their bank concert. They think they can do it themselves. And here's PC Potter to tell them they can't just stick them on pillar boxes without permission for the GPO. Yes. He is actually identified as PC Potter in a couple of episodes of Trumpton, despite apparently being the same puppet as PC McGarry number four five two from Camberwick Green. And actually, there's very few Camberwick Green characters that show up in Trumpton. I think there's really only Thomas Tripp the Milkman who drives past at the start of each episode, and Tabitha the Cat who must have some pretty enormous territory. And some of them are seen watching the band concert at the end of each episode, and that was just presumably because they needed to fill out some of the crowd a bit. It's never quite been clear because they all show up in Chickley, but never really in Trumpton. And is it was it a deliberate decision? It's just something that nobody really knows. Actually, won't that pillar box still have some paste on it? And they've just gone off and left it. So what's going to happen if Mr. Robinson, the window cleaner, is passing and he just sort of becomes adhered to it? Are they going to have to come out again to free him? And meanwhile, what madness is this? They just assume that they can put their adverts on Mr. Clamp, the greengrocer's notice board. Although that said, he does seem to wait about a month before intervening. So now they're trying to stick an advert on a proper commercial billboard. On what a collection of adverts this is! There's a Potter sale, which is presumably hinting towards the yet-to-be-revealed existence of Harry and Winnie Farthing from Chigley, like some sort of setup in the Trumpton cinematic universe. There's one for Mr. Crockett's Garage from Camberwick Green. There's a furniture auction. Well, fair enough. And there's a flower show, which is interesting because there was actually a very, very elusive Trumpton film strip with Mark's toys. Flashy flickers projector in the 60s called Flower Show, which nobody seems to have seen, so that might well be a reference to that. And there's an advert for France, just France, which really just looks like Trumped and with some water. And along comes Nick Fisher, the Bill Poster, telling them to stop. And he actually stops the music when he shouts it, which is possibly just a little bit too fourth wall breaking for Trumped and shit. And also, it's not quite clear. Why are we using the fire engine rather than just running up and down a ladder? Because anyone who's ever done any fly posting will know that the most important thing is to get it up and get out of there before anyone rumbles you. And also, Captain Flack thinks it's, quote, absurd, quite absurd, that they aren't allowed to just take over a commercial billboard, which doesn't really suggest that he's very familiar with anything to do with the concept of market forces so this is their ingenious solution to the problem that they've got and they can't find anywhere to put up their posters which is literally to plaster the outside of the fire station with posters which makes no sense at all because who actually goes to the fire station for any reason nobody does so nobody's going to see them so it might have been better just to ask the mayor for permission to put a couple of them up in the park so while they're preparing to do that, I just wanted to mention Freddie Phillips' Fireman Bold, which is a tune that you're hearing now, which is probably the best known tune from Trumpton, which I've always felt sounds a little bit like a must to avoid by Herman's Hermit, which was a hit in January 1966 when they just completed production on Camberwick Green and were about to go straight into working on Trumpton, so at the very least it's quite the coincidence. Uh, Also, if you've ever tried to play both of them on the guitar, this is something that must genuinely be in the coincidence. But you will know how structurally similar Farmer Bold is to For What It's Worth by Buffalo Springfield. So, unless Jimi Hendrix was writing letters to Stephen Stills with transcriptions of this crazy far-out music that he'd heard on the British BBC, it really is just a coincidence, and they never did anything that sounded like the Mickey Dunn theme either. Or the Loving Spoonful did cover the theme from R3, obviously. Just pause there while Cuthbert accidentally descends the ladder. I mean, really? That how dare to try and stick a poster up make him fall down (laughs) so after fireman grubb has a bit of a go at nick fisher and tells him that he'd look just as silly trying to put out a fire which i'm not sure is really the right way in which you should describe how he'd look trying to put out a fire but they finally admit defeat and they get nick fisher to help them put up the posters and we get his song which specifies that he can often be found putting up advertisements for flower shows and concerts Which is entirely fair enough, and in fact, they're both directly provable by this episode. But also, sausages and pills, which, in a way that you just can't put your finger on, seems oddly out of place in the whole sort of Trump-dunter-universe-want-of-a-better-turn-of-phrase. A bit like the way Mr. Dagenham's song in Camberwick Reed boasted that he could sell a button. And that's not really a very good poster, is it? They could at least have gone for one of those 80s-style jazz designs with Cuthbert blowing wildly into a saxophone or something along those lines but no they're going for something really bland and functional informational so yeah good luck getting anyone to attend well i say that but you know people do attend the band concert so clearly maybe i'm the one who shouldn't go into advertising and yes so he's now going to help them put the posters up all over town. which wasn't that the problem initially that they couldn't do that so quite why he's taking a bow i mean what's he going to do with them dump them in the lake in the park or something and that's the end of the story and here we are at the well it's not really specified whether it's the very first band concert or not but it's certainly a soft reboot of the concept and indeed of the concert at the very least and indeed i've got to stop saying and indeed anyway it's the first time that viewers would ever have seen well, not just the band concert, but trumped them full stop. And yes, there are quite a few Cambridge Green puppets in attendance, including the town planners for some reason. And there's always on top of that a long-standing mystery of why that assortment of percussion and brass instruments all sound like a single acoustic guitar. It's kind of like the reverse of the gizmo which is a device that godley and cream invented in the seventies to make a guitar sound like an orchestra which it wasn't fully successful that it now become consequences of peter cook telling a story about basically about the gizmo saving the world <laughs> i mean between you and me he should probably just have called the fire brigade i suppose and here's the ink block clouds again. And I've always loved the way that when it comes to a longer name in these, they have to switch to a smaller font. But yeah, that's Trumpton, that's the build poster, that's the first episode. That's exactly how everyone first saw it way back in nineteen sixty-seven. Hope you've enjoyed this. Hope you found out a couple of interesting things. And if you want to know more about France, then I don't know, just like phone Mr Travel, the travel agent. I don't know. Well, that's just about it for this collection of highlights from Looks Unfamiliar. Don't forget, if you head to timworthington.org, you can find the full versions of all of these shows, and plenty more about my Patreon, and my books, and It's Good Except It Sucks, and loads more, basically. Everything's there. And also, if you're just feeling generous, you can help support the show by buying me a coffee. Yes, that does include you, Mariah Carey. And
0: then I remembered the robot hand. (laughs) So I
2: ran upstairs
0: to the loft and I got this robot hand down and ran downstairs and went, right, okay, you get the bag and I'll pick it up. And what I'm not, Tim, is a structural engineer. And I picked up this rat with the robot hand and all I remember is the sound. It went like this. This rat broke in half.
2: Not on Your Telly by Tim Worthington. From Fish to Fun to Ski Boy, the ultimate guide to the TV that time forgot. Find out more: timworthington.org.
8: That's going to be on for off the TV is it? It's going to be on Dave, so that's fine. That's going to, that's a good. If Dave want to take this show on, I don't know if you're watching people from Dave. We could do this, you know. It doesn't cost that much to do this. You know, think on. I could it's just a little look at the? Quit it out at three o'clock in the morning. No one will see it. That's true. We still get adverts and stuff. yeah, get some adverts in there. Yeah, for who's going to advertise with you saying awful things about people, everyone and everyone. And while we've got you here, Ali, actually, this is uh, from uh, viewer Tim Worthington. He's uh, a writer, uh, writes about, uh, and there's a podcast about uh, uh, old comedy and stuff. And he's written a book about comedy at Radio 1, amongst other things. Um, he sent me a picture of, can I have my ball back, my book, next to a book called The Good Alley. Yeah, that's all about me. And as I, if you look at the cat it says a guided anti-racism journey, journey from bystander to change maker. That's me. That's I'm The Good Alley. You, what have you done to to further the course of anti-racism? I've done a lot of stuff, Richard. You know, I don't care where women are thrown. I don't care what they look like. I, I still, I do them. I don't like, that's not anti-racism. That's, that's Thelonism, Richard. Whoever they are, I don't care.